And okay, and so we can get started now. Um, I want to welcome Kanu Ram, and um, he is our our sage for the day um, that we'll be interviewing. And we have um, Martin is pitch hitting for the um, interpretation. The car at the last minute had some pass passport business you had to take care of. So, um, so we have Martin doing that. And we'll just go ahead and get started. Um, I'm going to read Kanu Ram's um, bio to start with. Um, so Kanaram was born and raised in a small town in the mountains of North Carolina. And you'll all get to hear what a North Carolina accent sounds like in just a minute. <laughs> as a child, I liked, he liked sports, um, baseball, wrestling, and soccer. He has a huge baseball card collection. And he was an expert in the major league baseball for many years. And his strength in school was language arts and music. Um, <clears throat> on the other hand, the home computer baffles him. Um, luckily he married somebody that is quite savvy with technology. So <laughs> he's, he's covering, Krishna is covering what he lacks. Um, he has a laptop computer machine um, but received a message a couple of weeks ago that let me know it, to let him know that the Windows 7 is no longer supported. So just to give us an idea of how he, he's an ancient uh, technology there. <laughs> he has an associate's degree in sustainable agriculture, something practical for sure. Um, his specialty is improving the fertility and the the friability of soil. That's the technical term of making it nice and soft. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's like friability sounds like you're burning it, but okay. <laughs> um, I'm also, he's also qualified for plowing and cultivating. So that's a true PhD. You know, Prabhupada said a PhD meant plow department. <laughs> so I always laugh about that. Um, he has a good understanding of pasture management and the variety of grasses and forage plants that make cows healthy. Um, he's learned how to train oxen from Krishna Chaitanya Das and has trained four oxen to do practical types of farm work, including logging. Um, and he has a certification in emergency medi medicine for paramedics. And that's what he's doing now for his, for his work. Um, and contrary to popular belief, um, let's see, which is contrary to popular understanding makes him the person that cares for the patient. Oh, he's not just the person who cares for the patient in the back of the ambulance. Oh, he is the person that <laughs> cares for the patient behind, in the back of the ambulance, not just an ambulance driver. Okay. That's a frequently asked question. People ask, are, so are you the ambulance driver? And I say, yes, sometimes, but mostly I'm the person in the back of the ambulance caring for the patient while someone else is driving. Okay, so that was a good, good clarification. And he has spent time as a substitute teacher and a few years as a carpenter. So he's got a lot of very, very practical skills here. So 
for all of you that want to start a farm community, Kanaram's your man. Grab. So he joined the Hare Krishna devotees in 1999. He met Guru Maharaj at, at my house in 2004. And he got his first and second initiation together in Sagrahi at the Govardhan Puja Festival in the fall of 2013. And he's currently part of the Hillsboro Raleigh branch of the Sri Chaitanya Sangha. And he's been married to Heather for the past six weeks. Congratulations. Thank you. It's really nice. So um, I know that you were inspired to look a little bit at Joseph Campbell's um, work before we had this interview, because we've been using that as a template in terms of understanding the stages of the hero's journey and relating it somewhat to that of the, the Sadika journey. So, um, so before preparing for this interview, did you ever think of yourself as being on a hero's journey? Um, I think yes. I think mm -hmm. that in a lot of ways, I, I think people use the term, I fancy myself as a something or other. <laughs> in, the, in the fanciest expression of what I would like to be, I, I do think I, I sort of pictured myself, you know, as someone who would become a person who could help other people, a person who would become like a really sincere devotee and mm -hmm. um, somebody who was, you know, expert in like in devotional service and somebody who was you know like one of the confidential servants of krishna you know and on my best days i, I feel like i could you know i could attain that in in my future life um, mm -hmm. there was an old commercial that some people in america might remember is a gatorade commercial and uh, in the background was michael jordan and the, the song went sometimes i dream that he is me. You got to see that's how I dream to be. I dream I move. I dream I groove like Mike. If I could be like Mike. So like in the in a similar way, you know, I, I sort of did uh, picture myself as mm. being able to become, you know, a hero of sorts. Nice, nice. Yeah. And I've seen a lot of change in you since I first met you and, and can certainly see how much progress that you've made on this journey. So really happy to be getting to speak to you about that and some of your realizations. So when you were growing up, did you have anything in your life that maybe would have indicated that you weren't really going to just follow the ordinary course of life, but that you were actually going to take to a, a spiritual process like this? Um, I thought about that. Um, and I think that in my early life, until I was a teenager, at least, I think I, I led quite an ordinary life. Um, I had nice parents. Um, they were both religious people. Um, my father was the son of a Methodist minister, so he would he had grown up in church, um, and we went to church every Sunday. My mother sang in the choir, so she went on Sundays and Wednesday, when, excuse me, Wednesdays. Um, and then my my mother's parents um, were quite religious people, and um, they went to church all the time. And my 
my grandfather liked to discuss religion with people. When Jehovah's Witness people would come to the house, he would invite them in and, you know, ask them questions and talk to them and probably try and convince them of things. Um, and I think that was one of his aspirations for me. I think that in, in my early years, he said, maybe you'll grow up to be a, a Baptist preacher. Um, and I thought, I, I don't think so. I, it didn't sound appealing to me at the time. But, um, but in a lot of ways, my life was, was ordinary, just like in the hero's journey. It's like Joseph Campbell talks about how the early life, all the circumstances are known. Your future is already laid out. And I, I assume that my life would follow the standard course. Um, I thought that I would go to school and I thought that I would go to high school and then I would go to college and then I would get a, I would get a degree in something in particular and I would go out and I would use that degree uh, to make money in a career and I would get married and have children and, you know, grow old and, you know, just be a regular materialist like all the <laughs> like all the like so many people that were around and and I, I I thought you know I had ordinary thoughts about um Christianity so, so my, my life was, so then what actually turned you what what was was there a significant event that actually turned your you away from that conception of your 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 life to go in that way direction so I, I think that, I think I was maybe 13 or 14. And, um, and I think my father had some things he wanted to tell me about his life, like a long, deep personal conversation about some of the things that had happened to him in his youth. And mm. he, um, we were driving along and he was telling me about um, his ideas about reincarnation. Um, so it was an idea that I'd heard of, but I didn't know a, a lot about it. And he told me that he was driving, um, I forget exactly where this place is, but um, he was driving past Jefferson Davis's farm or home place. And for those of you that don't know, the, Jefferson Davis was the president of the Confederacy. Um, I guess it would have been in the 1850s, 1860s. Um, and my father said, as he drove past this place, he felt some profound feelings and that he could tell that he was very familiar with the place. He, he knew all of the things about the place. He knew about the fence and he knew the trees and he knew the buildings. And the way he described it was quite broad-minded. I remember he said that I felt like, I don't know if I was Jefferson Davis or if I was his wife or his secretary or his horse, but I knew for certain that's how he described it. And I said, I knew for certain that I had been there and it really shook me up and I had to pull over and I had to stop what I was doing and, and call my friend and check in because I, because he felt he was really rattled. Mm. Um, and then I think later on, we had another conversation when I was um, in high school and he was talking about the nature of all things as like being made of atomic energy. And it was sort of a, a unifying kind of idea, a unity idea that I was made of atoms that spin and they have a certain rate that the, the electrons go around the protons and neutrons and so does the building and uh, so does so many things. 
So that, that I never quite thought about life like that before. Um, also, that's really, that's far out. You know, those, the, your father's insights. And um, I mean, that was profound for him to have those insights and experiences. It was. He's a, he's a very thoughtful person, and, and he helped me a lot. Actually, um, I think right when my mother and father were first married, they had gone on a meditation retreat in Massachusetts. They were sponsored by some man to go up there, and so they went up there and studied with the Maharishi Maheshi Yogi for maybe a month. So he, had, he and my mother had been exposed to meditation and, and some things like that. And I don't think he was very into it. He didn't like carry on with that after he was finished. But I, certainly he was exposed to some interesting ideas that were out of the ordinary. Yeah, and to be so open, especially yeah. coming from that community that he grew up in, which yeah. is not generally what you see. You see a very yeah. closed kind of conception of who God is and who the true worshipers are. So that's, I think that's really amazing. Yeah. And um, I guess another thing that, that I hadn't, um, that I hadn't mentioned is that I was in my childhood, I was a big Star Wars fan. Mm -hmm. Star Wars is a science fiction movie and the the hero of the story is Luke Skywalker. And, um, and so his story is based on um, the Joseph Campbell idea. So George Lucas, actually, I was researching this earlier this week. He was, um, he had written the first draft for Star Wars and wasn't satisfied with it. And the storyline didn't play out very well. And so he read Joseph Campbell's Hero of a Thousand Faces and went back through in the, the second draft and applied the principles from the, the hero's journey to Luke Skywalker. And then his story made a lot more sense but that's that's also like something that i really was inspired by i i had all the star wars figures i was a huge i was a huge fan and when i was young i would every time we would go to the store i would beg for a a star wars figure and i had most all of them and what i really wanted to be was a a jedi knight people would ask like what do you want to be when you grow up you want to be a fireman or a policeman or whatever and what I really wanted was to be a Jedi Knight. And I remember we, we saw my friend over the weekend and she even reminded me how we would play in the forest. And I would say, you have to walk along this log, which go, goes over a ravine. And I would say, you must learn the ways of the force. And I would encourage her to use the force. And so that I, I was, I was quite inspired by that. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, so like I, we were saying before, right before when we were talking before the uh, interview started, how these are these superheroes like you know Luke Skywalker, they're they're just you know they're reflections of the true, um, you know the true superheroes like like Ramachandra and well Krishna of course and all the avatars and but we're looking for that, you know, we, we, we are passionately looking for heroes in our life. And, and so, yeah, we, we settle where we, we find these and people who have magical powers and, or, and we think, yeah, this is what I want to be like until, until we, we find the real deal. So, um, yeah. So when I, when I was in high school, 
I was I was really lucky to to meet somebody. My, this is, I guess, where the the, the foundational concepts or, or what Guru Maharaj refers to as the foundational stones of the, the temple of my devotional life would would grow from. And um, so I started to get introduced to some of these ideas and concepts from a, the guitar teacher that I had. Um, I was 15 or 16 and I recently got a guitar. I was learning how to play. And this man was in his late 40s, I think, and his name was Jeff. And Jeff was eager to talk with me about these things. I told him that we, I forget exactly how it started, but I spent three years learning guitar from him. And, and as much time as I spent learning the guitar, he was introducing me to concepts like yoga and meditation. And he would tell me things like, you're not your mind and you're not the things that go on in your mind and the thoughts that you think in a repetitive way they're not really you. And if you, if you can distinct, like make a clear distinction somehow between who you are as the conscious observer and the thoughts and feelings and emotions and that you have in response to the circumstances of your life, like you'll, you'll start to feel more peaceful, you'll start to be happy and you'll start to see that there's a, a bigger version of yourself that lies within. Um, so he talked with me. We talked a lot. We talked for about three years, about an hour a week. And we, we focused on that as much as we did guitar. So that was very, very helpful. Well, he was uh, one of your Vartmapradarshika gurus. And he certainly was. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. I think he was a vegetarian. And I think he was, anyway, he was a very interesting, transformative, early mentor. Nice. Yeah. So um, I think that let's see so um i think one of the other the, the later big turning points in my life um was so i went i finished high school in 1996 um so that tells you a little bit about how old i am i'm 43 years old and um so i went to uh, the university, um, not a, not having a clear idea about what I wanted to do or how to make the most of my time at the university, but then um, about, I don't know, eight or ten weeks into my first semester, my mother committed suicide. So um, that must have been quite a shocking experience for you. It was. That was that was really hard and and a huge. Hmm. A heartbreak at the time. Um, my uncle came and found me at the dormitory, and and he told me your your mother has died. Your mother died last night. She killed herself. Um, and I had known for years that she had suffered from depression. She had been hospitalized and had extended stays in in hospitals, um, being treated for depression. And I had I hadn't really thought that she would ever kill herself. I didn't realize that it would come to that. Um, I think at the time she had just been recently married, maybe six weeks prior, and I think that she had. Uh, I think that her husband at the time. I, I think he didn't believe in mental health issues. I, I think that he didn't really believe in depression, and I think that she had come off of her mental health medicine. So I'm sure that was a huge change in her chemistry and her brain chemistry and things. And, and I think that was probably 
really overwhelming for her. Um, wow. So, um, so that I was 19 then. And, um, and so that, that made me start asking a lot of questions. Um, I had grown up in, in the Baptist tradition uh, as a Christian. That's one of the denominations. Um, and that I knew that, that, so as I sat through her funeral, I remember this, the preacher saying, oh, that Wanda, my mother was a, such a nice Christian and that she sang in the choir and that she was always so nice to everybody. And she was a soft hearted person, a kind person. And that, you know, certainly she's gonna go to heaven and she's gonna go and do whatever the Christian idea uh, is of being in heaven. But at the same time, I knew that the Catholics had a very different idea that for Catholics, if you kill yourself, then you go to hell. And so I thought, well, you have all these, this disparity of ideas in the same, within the same tradition. And I thought with those two ideas being so different, they're not both right. Mm -hmm. So it made me start asking a lot of questions and having a lot of deep thoughts. And I had grown up believing in God and I had some idea about the nature of, of the soul that we would continue in an afterlife somewhere. And so I believed that, that my mother continued to exist somewhere and it started, you know, make, making me think about what is the nature of the soul and like what happens after we die and what, you know, she's dead and I assume she exists somewhere. Is she safe? Is she happy? So I, a lot of those thoughts were, were going on and really it was, a, it was almost an obsession. I, I couldn't stop thinking about it for about a year. Wow. And, um, and at the time, um, about the same time as a, a coping mechanism of sorts and also just part of being a, a college youth. I, I may or may not have got into smoking lots of marijuana. I, I can't remember exactly or confirm or deny here on the internet, but that, that may or may not have happened. And in the course of, in the course of all of that, it, I had a lot of, um, a lot of different ways I was able to like, have a, like Guru Maharaj says, I was able to change my angle of vision. I was able to get a different perspective and I was able to see um, just really through a, a lot of blessings and, and also like a lot of that time was spent in a meditative way. That time wasn't spent going to parties and a lot of that time was spent listening to music. I, I was always interested in music, but a lot of that time was spent in a lot of meditative thought, wondering about her, wondering about, about mm -hmm. life in general. And I had a lot of ideas and and some some realization and revelation through through grace and mercy that that there was that there was a um, a higher realm that seemed more real and more substantial to me than my present life had been. I felt I felt like whatever was going on in the average workaday life of going to school and planning for a future of of um, getting a job and like having a house and buying a car and like a life of uh, happiness gained through acquisition did not necessarily appeal to me because I, I believed that there was a higher reality. And that I was, there were times, a few times that I had sort of tapped into that and that was making my faith strong in that. Mm -hmm. And so that, that was one of the huge leaps of faith that I was able to make. Um, that was very helpful. And um, around the same time, I got some Agyata Sukriti. And if anyone's new that Agyata Sukriti is a new term, it means like you, 
you unwittingly or unknowingly, even by mistake, you, you make some, you perform some devotional service. Um, so um, I worked at the radio station as a DJ on Tuesday nights from seven to nine at the UNC Greensboro um, College radio station. And there was a, a public service announcement that I had to make public service announcements so many every hour as a requirement as a DJ. And fortunately there was a, a Hare Krishna food program that was going on um, just next door to the university. And it was all that the place where the food program happened was within a stone's throw of the apartment that I lived in. So I would, I was saying that on Monday nights, my PSA went something like this on Monday night, there's a Hare Krishna food program at St. Mary's house. Uh, there's a free vegetarian dinner and you can come and have a free vegetarian food every Monday night or whatever. So I was making this public service announcement. I was saying Hare Krishna and, and, um, and I, I never went myself, even though it was literally 50 yards from my apartment. Um, so I got a little Agatha Sukriti there and um, let's see. Oh, uh, let me backtrack just a little bit. So around that, around that same time, I was still, um, it, it was quite a hard time in my life at the same time. I was still like deep in thought about, about my mother and, um, but really th those, Revelations, I meant to say this earlier, they're, for someone looking at that, it's, it's kind of like that, there's a verse in Chaitanya Charitamrita that it sort of reminds me of, it's a, that Guru Maharaj uses a lot. Um, Baya Visha Jivala Hoy, Bitare Anandamoy, Krishna Premera Adbhuta Charit. So externally it appeared if there was Externally, there appeared severe tribulation, as if he were suffering from poisonous effects, but internally he was experiencing bliss. This is the characteristic of transcendental love of Krishna. So in my own like crude way, in, in a very small way, if you were to look at my life from the outside, and you would say, here's a broken-hearted 19-year-old intoxicated kid without a lot of knowledge, without a lot of ambition, um, and in a dumpy little apartment in, in, a, in an old rundown house. Mm. But on the inside, compared to what my life had been in my youth, I was touching something deep and profound. And I was experiencing something and that was a huge blessing. And, and it wasn't love for Krishna, it wasn't Krishna Prema or Krishna Bhakti, but it was that my faith was increasing to the point where I was, I was touching something real, which was categorically different than all the things that I had experienced up till then. So that's a, a, a crude example of, of what was going it's on. At the time. Nice, nice example. I like that a lot. And I think, yeah, a lot of, a lot of devotees have that experience of touching something categorically different than matter and having yeah that's that that's a real for me that i think the biggest faith building was touching that what you're talking about and yeah it's not praying but it's it's definitely some a spiritual energy that 
that somehow starts to seep into our into our consciousness yeah yep. really beautiful um so um from there i think that um so anyway like while i was living there um i think that one night we were i had some friends and i were um just about to go and play frisbee and i think that I, I was really lucky because the timing was just right and we had just stepped out onto the porch to go down the steps and that was like a monday night where one of these Hari krishna food programs was happening right next door so as i stepped out to walk down the stairs some devotees including krishna chaitanya and adi karta and probably bhakta tracy and bhakta todd drove by in a little blue pickup truck and they were performing kirtan in the back of the truck and i could hear the the guitar and the kartals and people singing and i was really struck by that sound i was really moved and if i hadn't like gone if i hadn't already had plans to go and do something else at the park i would have certainly followed that sound i was i was really inspired i'd never heard anything quite like that and that that was another big mm. point of impact for me as far as like the possibility of getting into devotional service um so it wasn't long after that that I, my my life sort of fizzled out. My material life really fizzled out, and um, I sort of I lost interest in school. I had a little job waiting tables or something, and that that fizzled out. And um, and around that same time, I had gone for a long walk around the around the town, and I had gone to a friend's house and. She gave me some of Prabhupada's books. I had I had seen them on her shelf, and I got a quest for enlightenment and the first canto of Srimad Bhagavatam. And I, I read like the first hundred pages, excuse me, of Srila Prabhupada's quest for enlightenment. And I'd already I'd been thinking about religious ideas. I'd been taking some religion classes. I'd I'd read some Dalai Lama books, and I'd read some. Tibetan Book of the Dead and a variety of conversations with God, which Guru Maharaj mentioned not so long ago. I read that. And um, so when I when I found I'd already been trying to process what my ideas were about spirituality. And I was piecing it together from all these different things, from a piece from this, one piece from this tradition, one piece from that tradition. I believed in monotheism from Christianity and I believed in karma and reincarnation from Buddhism. And I was pulling from different things, trying to look, I was looking for something that, that made a lot of logical sense. And when I found Prabhupada's book, I was really inspired. I thought, oh, here's all these great concepts all under one roof. I think this is probably what I've been looking for. I had, I had no idea it was even out there. Mm -hmm. I thought I was gonna have to piece it together on my own. And, um, and I thought, well, so in the in the cover of the book there was an invitation to come to the sunday feast in Prabhupada village and um and that was probably early i think that was in the spring of 1999 and um and so i went um one sunday and um and i think that adi karta was there and adi karta asked krishna chaitanya to get me a, a plate of prasadam and so i um I had prasadam there. I met the devotees there. It was it was a big. It was quite a going affair at the time. There must have been seventy five people 
on the porch of his house. There were lots of devotees. It was very colorful. Um, I showed up late, so all the festivities were over. Uh, the kirtan had already happened. The class had already happened, but I, I stayed and talked with the devotees for a long time. I think they encouraged me to stay. Um, I think they were putting up hay at the time. They, they already had some cows. Krishna Chaitanya was milking, and they were putting up hay loose in the barn and the, the little blue pickup truck that they used for farm things and, and driving around in the kirtan in the city um, had broken down in the field. I had a pickup truck at the time and they said, can we use your pickup truck to put hay into the barn? And I thought, sure, that sounds nice. So I helped them pick up hay and, and I stayed the night and then um, got up the next morning. We continued to talk and they were telling me about Krishna and bhakti and devotional service and um, one thing that impacted me, they, they said that you never know when you're going to die. They're like mm -hmm. you could die at any time. Mm -hmm. And I, I had never really thought like that. I, I had really ordinary conception, like, oh, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm young, I'm strong, I'm going to live a long time, I'm going to live forever, whatever. And they said, you could die at any time. You, you, you don't know how your days are numbered. And I went home and I just about had a panic attack. I was like, they said I was going to die and I really could die. It could happen any time. There's no security of any sort. So that, that impacted me. And um, so it wasn't long and I moved in with the devotees later in, uh, later in the summer, early in the fall of that same year. And I was a brahmachari for some time. And um, um I tried to help Krishna Chaitanya. He was doing some gardening at the time and he was working, he was milking every day. Uh, he was working with oxen. I thought that was, I thought that was so interesting. I, I thought it was so cool what he was doing. And one day he asked me, uh, he was trying to pull some firewood out of the woods. He had a big ox named Bhima. And he, um, he asked me if I would help clear a trail. There were too, there was too much brush and too many little trees to get the, the piece of wood from the forest back to the house. And, um, and he asked me if I would help clear the trail. So I took a chainsaw or an ax or whatever tools we had and, and helped clear the trail. And then I saw him, you know, directing the ox to pull this huge piece of firewood back to the house. I thought that was so interesting. So um, fortunately I learned some, you know, I learned from him how to do that. Uh, that, was, that was a huge help. I thought that was amazing fun and um, <laughs> So, um, so the, so your early days as a brahmachari, um, they sounded like they were pretty blissful. Overall. Oh yeah. Those were, yeah. those were really good. Those times. Were really good times. Um, it was hard, but at the same time, it was so interesting. I was learning so much and it, everything made sense, you know, the, compared to what I'd been raised to think mm -hmm. and, um, hearing Srimad Bhagavatam, reading Bhagavad Gita and, you know, talking with Krishna Chaitanya and others, you know, for long hours, we'd spend doing chores and talking about Krishna Bhakti. And um, so I did some book distribution. Um, I used to travel with a devotee, Anandavidya from New Vrindavan. We had a lot of good times traveling then. Um, we would sell books. Um, we would do university universities and college campuses, um, and in the in the day we would sell books, and then about five or six at night we would sit down and we would just do kirtan 
on the lawn of wherever we were. And that was great. I mean, that was really, the day was full of devotional service and chanting and hearing. And then on the weekend, we would sneak into the malls in our regular clothes and we would wear a hat to cover up our Sika and our shaven head. And we didn't wear robes. And we would tell people that we were undercover monks and we would take off our hat and we would show them our Sika. And, um, and we would try to sell them a book. Oh, nice. And um, so I did that for a while. And then it wasn't long after that, I think it was 2004, um, when you had invited uh, Guru Maharaj Triparari Swami uh, to come to your house. And, um, and I think it was a big, um, a big kerfuffle, a big to-do at the time, because some, some other person that lived in the community had gone around and put some flyers in everybody's mailbox that said, Tripurari Swami's bad. He's not a bona fide guru. He left Prabhupada or something like that. And I didn't see it. And I, I, I don't know that I would have been affected by that. I, I liked sannyasis and I thought oh, I'd be happy to go and hear from him. And mm -hmm. so I remember going there and, and, uh, and hearing the lecture. And, and I thought, I, I've never seen somebody quite like him. I've never seen such enthusiasm. I haven't seen like the combination of enthusiasm and knowledge and expertise in, in presenting Krishna Bhakti. And uh, I remember telling Krishna Chaitanya, he probably remembers this. I was like, he's amazing. And I'm just a screw up. I'm just a screw up. And like, this is what I could be like, look at, look at where I could land where I could wind up in my life. Maybe my verbiage was a little stronger than that even. And, um, so I, I was, he made a, a tremendous impact, of course, and he still does in, in, our, in my life and in all of our lives. Um, so I, I think that there- can I, can I share one thing that I remember in those, in my early classes that, and I would like to know, like kind of just quickly hear from you how you kind of resolved this, but um, you know, you had this training from ISKCON and so, there were some ideas that were a little new and I remember the Anadi coming up and you know how it's beginningless that we've been here you know since forever there had you know and I remember you kind of hitting the floor going that's not fair that's not fair <laughs> and I and we all kind of chuckled because we all kind of had that, you know, kind of experience in the beginning of like hearing this new concept. So how did you get through that? Because that might have been a, a faith challenge for you. That was a huge faith challenge. Okay. Um, so I remember, I remember that class and I remember he was talking about the, that we, we didn't fall from Galoka and that we weren't going to return home. We weren't going back to Godhead and that we had always been in the material realm. That was just the, the hand that we were dealt. And I was thinking that that's not fair. Why me? I could have been one of the ones who was like a Nitya Siddha. I could have been a Nitya Siddha, but here I am about a Jiva. That's not good. Why, why me? Um, and I had heard Part of, the, part of the problem was, and it took me a long time to resolve, I was also obsessed with this point. I, I could not stop thinking about it. He, he put a, a bee in my bonnet that I, I couldn't let that point go. Um, part of the issue was that in hindsight, like that 
I had hung all of my faith on what Prabhupada had said. And what you, what you thought Prabhupada said. What I thought Prabhupada said. <laughs> what Prabhupada said millions of times. If you listen to the rhetoric, there's yeah. lots of things. You name the magazine, Back to Godhead. You're going to return home, Back to Godhead. There are lots of things that point in that direction. And while he did say in the, in the seventh canto, in the first, in the whatever chapter, that no one falls from the spiritual world, you'd have to make a pretty close reading compared to what he said I think more prominently, and then that, that point is certainly arguable. But I, um, so anyway, Tripurari Swami had made a very convincing case, and I couldn't defeat that. And what he said had uh, certainly changed my ideas. And so I asked lots of people that I trusted about what they thought. Did we fall from Galoka? Am I going home back to Godhead? Or like, am I just on my way there now? And I've never been, and at this point, I'm doing better than I ever have before. And I, I remember asking Varshana Swami, who I've had a good relationship with, who was very merciful to me. I asked Pani Bhushan, I talked with Krishna Chaitanya about it. And, and I, I couldn't let this point go. And I was traveling with Festival of India, and we had made our way to, I think it was maybe San Francisco, and I'm, I'm not sure, but I ran into Ganapati Swami. He was sitting on the lawn, uh, with a lot of devotees around, but he was sitting by himself, just hanging out. And so I went and I approached Ganapati Swami and I said, Maharaj, I have this issue and I can't get this topic off my mind. Maybe you can help me. And so I, I said, um, I heard from Tripurari Swami a while ago that, you know, like that actually we didn't fall from Vaikuntha and I'm a, I'm a Badajeev who's eternally been in the, in the material realm and and uh, and he said, actually, I agree with Tripurari Swami, and I think if you if you look closely across the Vaishnava scriptures, you'll see that that that's the case that's been presented. And Srila Prabhupada explained that for a particular time and a particular circumstance and audience. And the thing that really helped me a lot was he said that some of these ideas, if you look very specifically at them, you can get hung up on them. They're, they can be obstacles. They can be roadblocks in your devotional service. Mm -hmm. And so he said, try not to worry about it. And um, he said, try not to overthink it. Um, and don't let it, don't let it dissuade you from continuing to be a practitioner. Continue to chant, continue to hear, and in time it'll, it'll come out. And so Ganapati Swami was a huge help. And so I, I sort of just let it go. I didn't, I thought, well, so I really thought, so in my private opinion, I will think that I'm a Bada Jiva who's eternally been in the material world and I'm on my way for the first time to Goloka. But in my public opinion, I'll continue to say like Prabhupada said. Yeah, well, it's a preaching strategy. And, and if you listen to uh, Pamanava Swami's um, last interview with Nam Ross, he talked about the back to Godhead and where that came from, that it really sure. didn't mean back. It was from actually, he said the Archbishop of Canterbury had said something like that of getting people to turn towards God. And so anyway, it's, it's well worth watching, listening to that last episode because he he addresses a lot of these points in there so but that's wonderful and 
to see how Krishna helped you to maneuver through it and, you know, be able to land on your feet because sometimes those things can derail people from their spiritual life. So, so I want to, we don't have a whole lot of time left. So I do want to, to be able to jump into the messiness because, okay, we just talked about a lot of the beauty of your early days as being Brahmachari and Prabhupada village and really finding friends there and the service that you liked and worked hard and you were hearing a lot and you were growing and you, it was inspiring. So um, when did you start to enter into the dark night of the soul, the, the messiness, yeah. the challenges, the adversity that every hero has to go through? <laughs> So I think one of the one of the bigger things that was really complex for me that was part of entering the cave of of the, the darkness and and having to to carry in with me the the qualities that I had for my whole life was when I in my first marriage I, I married a devotee from far away um who was a nice person um in a lot of ways um but had a lot of really complicated um issues, probably had some fairly serious mental health issues that were unresolved and undiagnosed, untreated, and um, things like borderline personality disorder. Had She had a strong fear of abandonment, and that fear of abandonment caused her to, to act in, in ways that were unkind and cruel. Um, said a lot of things that, that hurt my feelings deeply. As you, as Archana knows, Archana and, and Karnamrita were our counselors. Because in, in part of that, um, just for a little bit of background, she and I had moved to Prabhupada Village and we lived two doors down from Archana and Karnam at the time. And they were counseling us because we were going through lots of problems. Uh, there were lots of issues from the beginning that I should have seen. There were, there were many red flags about um, that should have warned me and that I should have that I should have seen, I, but I was naive and I had a lot of ideas about being a brahmachari and I, had, I didn't understand uh, what it meant to, to really be in a good relationship or to be able to recognize a healthy person that would be, make a healthy partner. And I, so I was naive and I didn't see a lot of that, but um, you guys were counseling us and, um, and we were trying to work our way through it and learned a lot of communication tools because we were, we were fighting very heavily and she's the kind of person who really would, there are people in this world who want attention. We all need attention. We need affection and love and we need confidentiality. We need confidential companions who we can talk to and we need, we need healthy attention. But there are people in this world who will take whatever kind of attention they can get. So if I wasn't giving her enough attention or the kind of attention that she wanted, the, the negative attention of having a big fight would be the kind of like deep experience um, that a lot of people would want in a positive way. She was seemed she seemed content to get in a negative way. It was deep. It was profound. It was very explosive. There was a lot of yelling and screaming and fighting. I assume that as your as my neighbors, you probably heard us yelling and swearing at us sometimes out on the lawn. It, it could have easily happened. Um, and then um, so that that went on for a long time. And um, so she had such complicated feelings that, that um, she would, she, she did some things which were somewhat underhanded 
somewhat deceitful might be a strong word but i think that's what it was and it was a, a cry for help in some ways and also i think uh, an opportunity i had sort of become a target for her um to try and be manipulative so guru maharaj sometimes talks about the nature of being controlled by love that krishna is controlled by love radharani is controlled by love that's what that's really the how the spiritual world orbits around around love but sometimes in the in the material realm we see that he often describes somebody could control you by force they could physically capture you and tie you and and uh, and put you in a prison or put you in a box with a lock or somebody could control you emotionally or psychologically they could tell you things that weren't so they could convince you of of realities that weren't there and they could convince you that you were being a, a bad person or or an abusive person when you're just trying when actually you were the target of someone else's abuse um so that that's really what went on with her in a lot of ways and i had lots of faults in it too i, I was not a mature person I, I wasn't always kind um i wasn't as patient then as i am now um i wasn't as understanding about human nature then as i am now um but she used to sometimes we would have a fight and she had she would write me long letters on the internet saying that she was a, a psychic person and she adopted another name sarah flitz and so i would get these long emails from this person named sarah flitz telling me what a terrible person i was and how i needed to change and how, how i'd treated my wife poorly and i really needed to get off my whatever and do the right thing and um so there were lots of letters there were lots and lots of long letters and and i thought this is just there there was a part of me that that thought oh, maybe that could be wouldn't that be amazing I, I never met this psychic and now she's writing me these letters and she's telling me all these things and she's a wheelchair bound person that lives in the town where i live and that she happened to her husband happened to meet my wife and some chance encounter while i was out of town and she had talked with him and now she's giving me a free advice isn't it great and but you know deep down i thought let me try and make the most of this let me i'm already in this situation i'm already married let me try and make the most of this let me work on this get some good counseling and i'll learn some communication tools and tips and tricks from great people and and you know maybe we can make this work and eventually things got so bad things became so out of control that that archana and karnam said we're we're not going to counsel you guys anymore it's just and which i i understood is probably too much for you the the, the details were too gory um you know the police had been called more than once and fortunately nobody ever had to spend any time in jail but i i thought this is certainly a red flag if you flunk out of counseling you know your life is on an on a bad trajectory and so fortunately um people stepped in and they they said you're you're not in a good place um this this person is not good for you um my father talked to me on the phone because i had i'd had to leave and spend so many weekends away from from our house due to the terrible fighting and i would go and stay with him sometimes i would go and stay with my grandmother sometimes and um and he said i can't support you in in continuing to try and pursue this relationship um so um it was 
in May of 2013 that I'd finally had enough. I realized that there was there was no way that I could remedy the situation, that the, the fighting was going to continue and that I was never going to be happy. She was never going to be happy with me. That she kept she would I would say, you know, the, the person that you described to me while you're yelling at me is not me. And that person is out there and you should go find him. You're not happy with me, but the person that you're looking for, maybe he's out there and you should go find that person. And that would only continue to make her more angry and stuff. But I really believe that. I thought you should see, like, if you had a reasonable vision, like you're not happy, I'm not happy, we should part ways. So in, in May of 2013, I left. Uh, and um, one funny thing I thought was uh, she, um, she wanted to do one last bit of last Hail Mary type of counseling. And so she found somebody that was supposed to be a super expert from some school of psychology and relationship counseling or whatever. And, um, and so I, I agreed to go, but I said, I, it was very expensive. I think it was five or $600 an hour. And I said, I'm definitely not helping you pay for that kind of counseling. And she said, that's fine, I'll pay for it. And so we went and talked with this lady. I think she was in Cary or Raleigh or whatever. And, um, and we talked with her maybe once or twice. And, um, and after I left, after I'd already decided like, this is definitely never gonna work, I have to go. Krishna Chaitanya gave me some counseling and he was telling me like that all the people in my life were encouraging me to don't do this anymore. They're like, they're like a choir of angels and they're all singing to you is what he said. The, get out, run for your life, run for your happiness and freedom. They're all singing the same song. And, um, and so I left and then she called this counselor lady and she called and she said, actually, your, your, your wife, she suffers from uh, narcissism and borderline personality disorder. And what she's doing is she's doing what's called gaslighting. And she said, have you ever heard of gaslighting? And I said, no, I, I don't know what that is. And she said, well, there was a movie made about it in the 40s or the 50s. And it's usually what happens is that men do it to women um, and they try and convince them uh, of a reality that just isn't so. And I think that there was a lights in the back in the day were not electricity, they were gas lights. And I think that the man was telling the woman in the movie that the light was on when it wasn't. And she would say, clearly the light is not on. And he says, yes, the gas light is on. And so it's a whole psychological thing where people are tried to convince of, of realities that aren't so. Um, and she said, and the problems that your, that your wife has are things that are deep seated and things that you're probably not gonna be able to, to ever fix. And they're problems that are above my pay grade. That, that was her term. And I thought, wow, if they're more than five or $600 an hour, that's <laughs> just bad problems. And I'm an untrained person who's just a simple person from the country. I'm not going to be able to, to resolve this. And so that was, the, that was the end of that relationship. And fortunately, around that time, I, um, I was free to do what I wanted because Saragrahi had, had gotten started while, um, while she and I were together. And I remember I so badly wanted to go and be part of the festivities that were going on in like 2011. I think Tripurari Swami was going to be there. I think Varshano Swami was going to be there. So many devotees were going to go. And, and I was like, these are like my two favorite 
spiritual people and they're going to be there at the same weekend and they're it's going to be all, like all my devotee friends are there and she didn't want to go and it had, be, it had been a big fight and so like after i left i was free to to pursue devotional service the way i wanted to and um anyway there's a lot more a lot yeah, more so, yeah of course yeah so so how so looking back now that you're on the other side gotten way past that and what can you say that um, you really, what was the takeaway from that whole experience? Because it seemed like, you know, Krishna kept you in it for a long time and um, you had a lot to learn from that. So what would you say were some of the gifts and the takeaways from it? Yeah, I think that... <clears throat> Like uh, you and Karnam, I think we're for a long time working on a book called "When When Bad that Is Good." Is good yeah. So I think a, a lot of the things, uh, in hindsight, are blessings. There are so, and there are things which seem terrible in the moment. While you're living them, they seem just awful. They seem um, devastating or confusing. And while you're in that situation, you can't see clearly, you can't see the reality of the situation and you can't, because of the impact of it and the, how consuming it is and time consuming emotionally and energetically consuming, you can't figure your way out of those things. Um, and I think that was, that was definitely going on. But through all of that, I think that I learned a lot about my shortcomings. I learned what an impatient person I was how I wanted, what I wanted, when I wanted it. Um, I think that there's a, the old song, everybody wants to rule the world. And I was, I was not different. I could see that I wanted things from the relationship when I wanted them. Um, and that that wasn't a, a good reality to live in that and being impatient, wanting things to happen right away. Um, I was working on a farm at the time, which I was developing nicely. It was going well, um, but I, I couldn't see how well it was going based on the, the number of resources and the amount of manpower that was going on. Things were really coming together nicely, but I was so impatient. And there were there were other things too that, that made it not ideal, but I was really impatient about it. And so I, I gave it up and moved away. Um, but actually it was going quite well and uh, I, my expectations were so high. Sometimes we, we go through life with lots of expectations about how we want our life to look, uh, how fast things should proceed. So I, I learned a lot about like curbing those expectations and curbing my, um, my sense of what other people were, were like willing and able to provide, you know, people, people want to help, but you know, like, <laughs> It's, we have often unrealistic and unfair expectations of how other people should interact with us. And um, it's important to be generous with others, like Guru Maharaj has said many times. It's also important to be generous with ourselves. One of the things that I, I learned was that I'm still working on is like a better self-talk. Um, having, you know, having gone through a lot of, of negative, self, negative talk coming from outside with my ex-wife saying all these awful things, hurt, very hurtful things, deal breaker kind of things that the average person would be like, wow, somebody said that to me, I am out. Nobody is going to talk to me like that. And I tolerated that for a long time. Um, so um, I think that my, my approach to the world is like, I, I have a much, much better boundaries. 
than than I had um, mm -hmm. going into that relationship. And um, so, I, like uh, the things that I would tolerate, you know, as um, as Hare Krishna people, it's a it's a sort of an interesting dance or a tightrope of sorts of trying to become a tolerant person. I'm gonna, I want to be that third verse of Shukshastakam. I want to be humbler mm -hmm. than a blade of grass, and I want to be more tolerant than a tree. <clears throat> and those are good qualities. Those things are amazing. Uh, and at the same time, if you go through the world um, only following that and always tolerating and always being humble, the nature of some people is that they will take advantage of that and they will mistreat you. So th there's a really delicate art, the, the art of sadhana or the art of like introspection when, when we think about that kind of thing um, of how to be humble and how to be tolerant, but also to have good boundaries where, where our devotional life and our emotional life isn't put on blast by people mistreating us because of a lack of boundaries. Like we were saying earlier in the conversation, they, they did a study in, in compassion um, and boundaries. And they took a, a study of people who were monks and nuns, people who were supposed to embody compassion and understanding and mercy towards others. Um, and they found that those, those people were the people who had the best boundaries that, that weren't gonna do things, they weren't gonna do things that put them in a compromised situation. They weren't gonna be treated in ways that would, that would compromise their emotional life, mental life. So I learned a lot about that, and you know, of course, I'm that's a, that's a continuum that I'm I'm definitely still on. Um, but I think it it was helpful, and you know, like the things that when as far as like looking at the messiness of my life, you know, like one would never think like if your mother kills herself on your 19th birthday, how are you going to ever see that that's a good thing? But yeah. in hindsight it's it's it was a huge blessing because it made me so introspective that i really began to think about the real the real important things of life and how my life could progress in a transcendental way that i could you know i could even escape samsara i could take shelter of krishna's lotus feet i could become a servant of the guru and i could i could escape the realm of materialism um and without without that having happened you know i don't know like if i would have become so introspective yeah. um so that was a huge turning point for you it sounded like from your your story yeah it's a huge a huge blessing but yeah. you know like you you have to you have to like see that with a lot of hindsight you can't necessarily yeah. see that i know that there are people out there right now who are are probably suffering with a, a very heavy situation and they're not able to see clearly through the the murk and the mud of of what's going on in their emotional and, and mental intellectual lives um but those, those things are shaping us. They shape our character, they shape our, our future and they shape the way we think about the world. And, you know, fortunately we have, we have good guidance. We have a, we have a, a wonderful Sangha of, of awesome devotees. We have a wonderful spiritual master who's, who, you know, obviously profoundly merciful, compassionate. He's always giving, you know, mountains of shiksha, mountains of instruction. It's almost impossible to keep up with the amount of shiksha that's coming to us. So if we can if we can gain perspective from that side of our life, then we can, then eventually uh, we'll be able to see on the on the far side of whatever we're going through. We'll be able to see how those things are blessings, how those things were blessings in disguise. They seemed awful in the moment, but they they they'll help to shape us. Yeah, I really I like that that word shape and how all these experiences have been 
shaping us into becoming, you know, really advanced sadhakas and, or, you know, on the path to becoming advanced sadhakas. And um, yeah, then that's, I, I, I think that what you just said is um, one of those gifts that you've, you've gleaned from all these experiences and now you're sharing that with all of us because it's, yeah, the messiness is, is so important. We can't, if everything went well and it was all perfect, I, I can't imagine how humility and tolerance and respect would actually develop if you didn't have, at least for my own personal journey, that how, how those qualities would come about without having gone through and continuing to go through the, these challenges that help us to really work through the, the conditioning that's unfavorable for bhakti. Yeah. So, so that was really beautiful. Any, any last words you'd like to say before we turn this over to our audience for questions? Um, yeah, I mean, this, this, it sounds silly and it, it may be a crude example, but uh, going, going back to my fan base of being a Star Wars fan, Master Yoda says to Luke Skywalker in one of the most recent movies, he says, you're, when you're instructing your students, you, you should include your failings. Your failings are so important. So yeah. all the things that, that, have, that have been stumbling blocks you know, I, I'm happy to share those if, if those are beneficial. And I, I think that's a, a good way to, to look at the, the things that happen to us. Those yes, are, yes. Those are, those are going to be beneficial for somebody, hopefully. Yeah. And that's, and, and I think that's a, a sign of progress too, that we can own the messiness and to be able to see that, yeah, it's not, it doesn't, you know, a lot of shame comes with that, the things that happen to us. And so oftentimes you see people not wanting to talk about it because they think it reflects on them poorly or, you know, if bad things happen, so-called bad things happen to me, that means I'm a bad person or whatever the, the thinking, which isn't, it's so, it's so not true because, you know, look at all, you know, the Pandavas and, you know, look at, you know, so many of the heroes in, in our own tradition and, full of of trials and tribulations. And so if our life isn't full of trials and tribulations, then we can wonder, well, why why is Krishna not, why is he neglecting me here? It seems like everybody else is getting it. Why am I not? Yeah, why is he not shaping my life? Yeah, why isn't he shaping my life? It's so good, yeah, so good. All right, well, let's see if we have any, questions from anyone out there if um uh on the spanish side you can um let martin know you have a question and if anybody on the english side has a question you could just um unmute yourself and let us know martin you have something not yet okay okay (laughs) that's fine so nothing in the chat. Anybody have a question? Okay, Mitra has some, do you have a question, Mitra? I don't know if he has well, a question or he's just can, waving. Am I coming through? Is this yeah. coming through? Yeah. All right. It's, All right. Um, Mahara and I started the inner program 
at uh, in Greensboro. So we take all the credit. Yeah, you guys, you guys get all the credit. You guys, they, that, that's what helped me get my Agatha Sukriti and that's what helped me get my start in devotional life. That's amazing. Thank you. So that broke up a little, that broke up a bit, Mitra, your, your connection's not great. So I'm just going to repeat right. what that very, what Mitra just said. He just said he was, he and Mahara were the ones who started that dinner program that gave um, Kanram his original Agyato Sukriti. So he's taking all the credit. <laughs> I think that Gaurav Gauravani also uh, came to Krishna consciousness. Uh, due to the, the power of your dinner program. So uh, you caught more than one, caught one, more fish. Than one fish out of that boat. Oh, yeah. Some good we, fish. We started, we started it up, and then it got passed along to other devotees running it, and it ran for like 15 years, I think. 15 or 20 years. Oh, wow. it, would not, it would not stop. Okay. Okay, thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Anybody else have something they'd like to comment, question? Anybody? Krishna Chaitanya, you knew um, Khan and Ram for quite some time. You have any anything to add? Yeah. <laughs> no, not really. It no, was, not really. It was nice hearing the story, and it's interesting to hear some parallels. And it's just nice having Kanaram as a good friend for so long. Okay. We, Krishna Chaitanya and I are really fortunate. We get together, and I know that Krishna Chaitanya is always thinking about devotional service in so many ways. And so he's a he's a great guy. If I have a a problem or an issue or something that I'm thinking about, like I, I know he can. One of one of the things about one of the great things about Sadhu Sangha is that we we all have sort of a background of similar knowledge and ideas coming from the Gaudiya tradition, and so we can jump right into a topic um, rather than having to backtrack to square one. If you were to to make some friend at work, you'd have to you'd have to backtrack with them for twenty years of of knowledge and wisdom and ideas. In order to get them up to step to up to speed in order to talk about a thing so krishna chaitanya and i we talk about all kinds of stuff it, it's a blessing yes having affectionate like-minded association is such a such a gift okay anupurna has written something martin you want to translate that Okay, so we, we should 
we should repeat the question for people that are on Facebook. So um, Anupurna was really struck by um, Kanaram's talk, speaking about his um, mother's suicide and um, also about how he, one of the things that he's learned from his experiences, both with his mother and his first wife, um, have been about being able to set appropriate healthy boundaries. And so she wanted him to speak a little more about that. Um, I, can, I can talk a little bit about that. Um, you know, I, I'm married again, and now I have a, a wonderful wife who's a, who's a very good person. Um, and we're, we're very compatible, we get along. And we hardly ever like have fighting or even strong words. We've had some serious conversations, um, but I think that I think that you know it took me a lot of years. I, I think I was married the first time in 2008, and then um, and just remarried this year. So that that would be thir 13 years of growth that it took me. Um, in a lot of ways, to get to the point where I, I could establish the kind of boundaries um, that that a person needs um, in order to have better, healthy relationships, um, I think that when we first met, actually, like we were introduced by Goravani and Dana, um, and they set us up for sort of a blind date on a Black Friday about five years ago, and I. Uh, we went for a hike and Heather and I, we talked about a lot of things that, that were about boundaries. And we talked about emotional intelligence and um, we talked about, you know, understanding oneself and understanding other people and understanding emotions. And I think that it took me a long time to understand those things, but I, I was definitely, I think that we were attracted to each other because we were both thinking in that same vein that it takes a lot of emotional intelligence to pursue healthy relationships and to have healthy relationships to be a good partner or be a good friend or be a good servant. Um, so when I, I think we recognize that in each other early on, and I think that that's something that we're, you know, we continue to, to try and, and, uh, and be for each other. Um, so it, it may take some these things may take some time in order to learn. I'm, I'm still working on like boundaries. I don't, I don't have to have a lot of boundaries with Heather. We, we have such a good thing that, you know, like if you have a, if you have a good relationship or you have a, a positive thing of any kind, you have a, a lot of love and trust and you don't have to have a lot of rules. Um, so we, we get along quite nicely and I don't have to establish boundaries and if you have a good partner, you won't have to establish a lot of boundaries. You, you may have to talk about, you know, a few things like, I, I wish you wouldn't, I don't know, like make my coffee with no cream and sugar. That's, that's not going to work for me. I, it requires cream and sugar in order for it, for it to work but, or whatever. That's a, you know, a ridiculous example. But, but those kind of things can be talked about and somebody should respond to you nicely. If, you, if, you're, if you're establishing boundaries like, I need cream and sugar in the coffee and they're, they don't put cream or sugar or they just do the cream and that's, um, then you, you, you may have to recognize that someone's not recognizing your need for boundaries. Um, 
I don't know, Ar Archana's more expert in, in these fields than I am. Well, I think, I think you've learned a lot from the School of Hard Knocks about boundaries and yeah, something really important. And we, we talked a little bit right before the interview about, um, you know, that's been part of Kanaram's journey. It's been a big part of my own journey um, and how we treat, we actually teach people how to treat us. And if we're a doormat and we just let people walk all over us, um, then it's actually doing harm, not only to us, but to the person that's doing it because we're enabling their bad behavior and we're not teaching them how to be more respectful and kind. And so we're really doing a disservice. We're doing harm to them as much as they're doing to us. So I think a lot of times we don't, you know, establish boundaries because we, we think it's unkind. And I, and I like the example of what you said about that study where they, the, the nuns and the priests and that they found people that had, you know, had that having good boundaries was really an important part of compassion. And um, so it is, it's very compassionate to set boundaries. And I think that's a, that's it. The more we really embrace that, the easier it will be for us to, to speak our truth and to be able to tell people what our needs are in a, in a healthy, kind way. One other thing that you're, you're making me think about right now is that we're supposed to have compassion for all kinds of people, but we also have to have compassion for ourselves. Um, we talked about that a lot lately. We have to we have to consider our own mental health, our own happiness, and our own progress. And sometimes, in the name of doing doing things for others, or thinking I should I should only be a servant, I should think of myself less. That we can um, we can not be kind and compassionate to ourselves. So having having good boundaries is a matter of having compassion for yourself, which is which is really important. If you if you don't set those boundaries, you you may not make that progress. You you might be shortchanging yourself and not getting the kind of compassion from yourself that you need to make progress. Yes, and so we were also saying that that also short changes your guru and Krishna because you're, you're acting on their behalf now. You're an instrument for their compassion in the world. So we have to be able to be kind of start with the compassion for ourselves. So very good points. So any last minute, anything else anybody would like to add, subtract, question, comment? Everybody happy? It's a wonderful, wonderful interview. Thank you, Kanaram, so much. It was, you know, wonderful to hear. I, I love hearing the devotees tell their stories because even though I know you very well, <laughs> and, and you know, just hearing the whole you know, just putting it together like that and having it flow. It's just, yeah, it's just really nice and um, appreciating you. So, you know, I appreciate you so much as a practitioner of bhakti and watching you get through the messiness and grow and just, yeah, I'm so happy for you that because sometimes when, when we're in, we attract certain kinds of people into our, our lives, especially in relationships or something I think Freud called it the repetition compulsion that we have a tendency to 
you know, it's, it's like karmic issues that we keep having to work out. And if we don't really finish working them out in a relationship or after a relationship, then we'll very likely attract an exact situation, you know, we, you know, have to replay it again. So the, the fact that you did a lot of work on yourself, both during and after um, the relationship, um, and you spent a lot of time before you got into another serious relationship, I think it's a real testimony because you were able to attract a different kind of person because you had become a different kind of person. You worked through a lot of that karmic baggage that needed to be addressed. So wonderful. Kudos to you because <laughs> I can't tell you how many times I've had repeat devo devotees coming with the third relationship and it's wow this sure sounds like the one that they had last time and the one before and so yeah well thank you so much nicely and explaining that so well <laughs> yeah so um next week we think it's Anandamai is scheduled to be our siege for the next week. Let me just double check. Yeah, Anandamai. I might have to remind her. Um, I will remind her. Um, and so we'll see everybody back next week. And um, thank you so much for being the audience that supports us and keeps our enthusiasm going. And Gopananini's up there smiling away. See, that's what really inspires us when we <laughs> can see those bright, happy faces up there. <laughs> okay, so thank you so much. And Hare Krishna, and see everybody soon. Bye. Uh, bye. Bye.